Hi everyone, welcome back to Herstory Talk. I'm Melina and joining me today we have Maxwell Collins. Today we're going to be talking about women of the national parks. The reason I asked Maxwell to join me on today's show is because we actually have a goal of visiting every single national park. This is true. I, um, I'm a big fan of the, the national parks and I uh, have a history minor and have an affinity for history so I in my final semester of college, I took a, a course entirely dedicated to the history of the national parks, and it's a really interesting development. It has a lot of parts in it that work together in tandem with a lot of history, the turn of the century, you know, into the 20th century, um, and just, it, it, they, they end up becoming this, they, they hold more weight after the course, and I'm, I'm trying to take that, um, you know, how I've d determined their weight in my life and how important I think they are and trying to pull back some of that information and share it on um, a new a new brand offspring of, of, uh, of Molina's history talk um, called the National Parks Talk. So this is kind of the first introduction to that. Well, I think what's really interesting about the National Parks is a lot of the big names for the founders of na of the national parks were all men. And, you know, that kind of posed the question of, well, who were the women? And what did they do? So we compiled a list of four women, and uh, we researched what they did for the national parks. So we're going to start out with Minerva Hoyt, who... Um, I love, after researching her, I really love her story. She's a really cool woman. She helped found the Joshua Tree Monument, which eventually became the Joshua Tree National Park. So she fell in love with the desert after she moved to Pasadena in the 1890s with her husband. And something to know about Minerva and her husband is that they were rich people. And this was during the time of the 1910s and 1920s. And what do we know about the 1920s? Well, they were the Roaring Twenties, and they were the Roaring Twenties for a reason. Everyone was just kind of spending their money and, um, you know, this kind of led to the Great Depression, right? Anyways, when she went to Pasadena, she would take her horse and ride into the desert to gather items to make a garden at her own home. So she would do this almost every day. She would ride into the desert. She would see and study all of the different types of cacti and plants there, and she would take them home to make her own garden. And she said that she was transfixed by the world of strange and inexpressible beauty of mystery and singular aloofness, which is yet so filled with peace. Her husband and baby died and she wanted to find hope in the desert. She was literally left alone, um, not entirely alone because she had like all of that money, right? right yeah. I mean... <laughs> Which, which ended up being a really good thing for a lot of reasons, and we're going to talk about that. But she didn't really have anyone. She was originally from Mississippi, and she was all the way out in California, and she said her only companion was her maid. So what they would do is they would camp out in the middle of the desert because that's the only place that she could find peace and that she could find hope. Yeah, it's, um, you know, there's just... A lot of people, especially early on, some of the figureheads who were starting this movement, 
um, you know, in a time, you know, to kind of set the stage and, and backtrack a little bit, you know, Melina had mentioned that the 1920s, you know, the roaring, you know, after the onset of industrialization and there's a lot of new wealth being made. There's a lot of people in America who are reaching mid-tier, high-tier um, wealth, stuff that wasn't distributed, you know, that widely in a lot of societies prior to this. So there's a lot of people who have money, you know, making a lot of money um, from new products, from manufacturing, from owning, uh, you know, uh, factories and whatnot, that they're, they're kind of looking for stuff to use money on. And they're early on the national parks and in its development, especially when it relates to the federal government and actually enacting protection for some of these lands across the country, um, a lot of people with wealth were kind of the only reason it was able to start. Um, you know, sometimes when you have to work in this capitalist world, a lot of those people only speak one language and it's money. Yep. So, you know, Minerva and her husband having money, you know, and they have rich connections and rich friends. And, you know, if you can convince some of those people, you know, hey, you know, throw me $25,000 to get this movement going. It's much easier than trying to get, you know, some other groups of people to, to get it on it. And, um... Rich connections run deep a lot. It's a it's a web that a lot of us don't have like a concept of. Um, yeah, because we're poor. Right, <laughs> and, and, and they're they're pulling strings and they have all these resources and things that they can tap into in an instant. And um, you know, early in the national parks, that's something that turned out to be extremely beneficial. Um, well, there is a downside to wealth, though. Oh, of course, there always is. Well, like the one downside is that desert gardens became popular in the nineteen tens. And the 1920s. Oh, so yeah, right. So they they, <laughs> they they were like, oh, look how cool this is. You know, I have money, so let me just buy, excavate, you know, move these plants into my own personal uh, park. Yeah, I mean, you literally had people from New York City getting people to travel all the way out to California to gather these cacti and plants from the Joshua Tree forest mm. and take them back and you know she was doing that but she was doing that on a much smaller scale and it's different when you have one person doing it and it makes all the difference when it's pretty much every rich person is like oh yes the new trend is going to get right. cacti from right. from this place oh, in you, california oh you don't have the newest cacti in your backyard <laughs> what are you poor oh, oh my god you lost your you age. better get out there and yeah. get one before they're all gone and yeah. then and then they were all gone right um and and that's kind of what happened by the end of the 1920s the desert was almost completely stripped of its resources in 1929, she wrote, Over 30 years ago, I spent my first night in the Mojave Desert of California and was entranced by the magnificence of the Joshua Grove, which was thickly sown with desert juniper and many rare forms of plant life. A month ago, I visited the same spot again. Imagine the surprise and shock of finding the barren acreage, the whole face of the landscape a desolate waste. And they say that even today, it hasn't recovered. So because of those rich people mm. using their wealth and their resources to go all the way out there and strip the land, it has never recovered, what, a hundred years later? It's literally been a century. Yeah. A hundred years later and it still hasn't fully recovered. Yeah, and, and this is, you know, the, 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 the debate of what the parks should protect and, you know, how... 
you know, kind of what the parks should be and, and how they relate to, um, you know, kind of like a modern capitalist, you know, society and agenda. Uh, it, it's an ongoing debate. It's always been, you know, there's people who are naturalists and environmentalists who say, don't touch it. The, pur- the purpose of protecting the land is so that, you know, when we see it today, when we see that tree right there as it is today, my great-grandchildren can come back and see that exact same tree in its place, untouched, the way I saw it. You know, with its development, we can study, you know, how the tree develops, how big it gets, how wide it gets, what it does for animals. You know, there's groups of people who say that's the purpose of the parks. And then there's groups of people who are like, well, we can, you know, exploit this. You know, that tree is worth, you know, X dollar num- number of dollars. We can make houses, boats, whatever from it. Let's just, you know, strip them with moderation. They wanted to, you know, cut this tree but not that tree, cut every other tree and just say that, oh, you know, this is protection. Without the protection, like, there needs to be an authority that says, you know what, no, you are not allowed to take these trees. They have to stay the way they are to protect their, you know, their preservation in history, in this land. You know, there's greater benefits than to ripping them out of the grounds and, and, and ruining them for a hundred years. That's really what she sought out to do, mm. like in her own way after she, like she had already been in love with that forest. I think it had been really an emotional connection to her. And I think a lot of the people who discovered the national parks were, you know, had an emotional connection to them. I mean, if you've ever been to them, I mean, we went to Shenandoah recently and it's just, it's such a beautiful feeling but she really like that was the only thing she had in a way that was almost like her child and so when she saw that it was all stripped she was like i have to preserve this like Mm -hmm. this is ridiculous like you can't do this so she was literally determined to protect and preserve the ecosystem because she saw that like her own rich people ruined it um, and she helped take part in that too with her own little garden. I think that's what was kind of like. Right, and she was. Wait a minute. Yeah, you know, running around and showing everybody, but that that that, that doesn't give them the right to run and strip it. She was trying to bring it to light and say, "Look how magnificent!" They all just like, you know what? That is magnificent. Let me put it in my backyard next to my pool or my fountains. But a lot of the parks, um, and especially like. You know, a, a lot, again, because if you put yourself in, you know, this turn of the century time, America had this great ongoing battle with corporations getting bigger and bigger and monopolies and industrialization running rampant. Everything was about money. It was just, it was gung-ho. It was just like money, 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 money. You know, there's people making millions of dollars a year while there are people who are literally just chugging away in a factory with miserable conditions are making like $150 on the year, whatever ridiculous number it was. It was a bad number. And, you know, so you're trying to, when you try and create these parks, you're trying to convince that group of people that it's worth to protect when they're just like, no, let's just strip it. So a lot of the parks and, and its early movement is attributed to individuals who really went above and beyond to say, no, this is, we need to protect this. This is why. And some of the women here that we're talking about today are are those people. They are a part of history for those reasons that they, you know, without Minerva Hoyt's contributions to Joshua Tree, it may not be protected in the same capacity that we know it. 
Mm-hmm. I'm sure it would have become a national park at some point. Well, um, you never know because without right. her, it may have been completely stripped. Or and then no f- one would have like bothered to go yeah. near it or at all. Or a fraction, you know. She ended up protecting eight hundred and twenty-five thousand acres of land, which is a, it's a it's an extremely large number. I mean, and it's an important distinction to make too that national monuments and national parks are two different things. Monuments. Um, they're protected, but they don't reserve the same, like, echelon of protection that parks do, like, timeless protection. Monuments can be changed from presidents, um, like, over time. There were, there were talks of making it a park, but she wanted it to be a national park. She was like, this has mm-hmm. to be a national park, this has to be a national park. But she knew that she had to persuade higher-ups, and she knew that the higher-ups were... Rich people. I mean, who else would they be? So, she was like, fine. I'm going to play the game. Mm-hmm. I, I know how this works because I am a rich person. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm assuming this is what she said. Yeah. Amateur know. historians here. You know, yes. <laughs> so, what she did is in 1929 and 1930, she used her money and she took some plants from the desert and took them to New York City, Boston, and London and had three horticulture shows. And she showed the people, the rich people, hey, look at Joshua Tree Forest. Wouldn't this be a great national park? Look how amazing this place is. We mm. have to preserve the land because there is almost nothing left because you idiots took it all. I'm sure she didn't say that, but mm-hmm. you know. And everyone loved it. I mean, she won gold medals at the horticultural shows. Like, oh, wow. that's that's how much they loved it. And in 1930, um, she founded the International Desert Conservation League, which was a bunch of rich women who came together, and they were like, let's save the desert, right? So they kept annoying the National Park Service for, like, four years. They mm-hmm. kept annoying them. Yeah. And, you know, the National Park Service is just full of men at this time. Not really any women. Um, and it wasn't until 1934, after they saw all of this stuff happening and they kept bugging them, that they finally took her proposal seriously. So in 1935, she's like, no, 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 you guys, you guys aren't getting the message. In 1935, she sent President Roosevelt. She was like, listen here, FDR, um, I'm going to send you two photo albums of the forest, Okay. And I'm going to tell you why it should be a national park. Here you go. And in 1936, he signed Proclamation 2193, establishing Joshua Tree National Monument on 825,340 acres. So... She didn't live to see it become a national park because she died in 1945. But in 1994, it did become a national park. And I will say it with my whole chest, I do not believe that it would have became a national park without her. Yeah, I mean, that's that's an extremely fair uh, speculation. I mean, there's... I mean, she did so much. Yeah, she spent and, her whole life pretty much yeah, after her and, husband's death working on this. And this, this is this is what it took to bring these parks to to protection. Like, there's a lot of figures who just gave up, you know, like their lives, you know, their the comfort of their lives to 
pursue this thing tirelessly. Yeah. I usually say eat the rich, but she can stay. So there's there there are some, especially when it comes to the park movement, that uh, without them, they, they just it wouldn't have happened. It just wouldn't have happened. I mean, that's what I'm going to do when I become rich. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to make parks. <laughs> Anyways, moving on to our next rich girl, we have Susan Thew, another rich woman mm-hmm. who used her money to help the national parks. Um, So Susan came from a rich family in Ohio, and she moved to California with her inventor father, and then she later met her hubby there. Um, In 1918, she came across the Sequoia National Park, and this was already a national park. She didn't help found it, but she did help expand this national Mm. park which is actually really important. So the park was established in 1890. So it was one of the first few national parks, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, right behind like Yosemite and... Yeah, Yosemite, uh, Yellowstone, um, you know, anything before 1900 is definitely an early park for sure. So she, when she was out there, she would go to the Sequoia National Park a lot. Um, she would spend a lot of time there because you have to remember at this time during like the 1920s and 1910s, uh, women were still just housewives, especially rich women. Like rich women didn't have to work. They just kind of sat around all day um, and had a lot of time on their hands. So she met and became friendly with Colonel John R. White, who was the superintendent of the National Park. And he had shared the idea with her that he wanted to make a larger park. Um, And this had been on the table for a while. They had constantly been wanting to make a larger park, but nothing had ever really happened. Well, you know, here we have a rich woman with time on her hands. And in 1923, she decided that she wanted to explore the Sierra. She wanted to see what was beyond the National Park. And let me just say, she literally had little if any experience whatsoever in hiking and rough terrain and we have to remember this is like the sierra mountains i'm pretty sure so this is some of the roughest terrain in the country Mm -hmm. um not really an easy feat even if you're like a regular hiker even even if you're a well-conditioned athlete and you have to remember at the time i don't know i just thought about this but at the time they didn't have like good hiking boots or anything oh, no, like yeah, homegirl was probably hiking and god knows what oh yeah um, barefoot probably most of it i don't know she was probably too rich to be hiking barefoot i don't know <laughs> but she literally uh decided to hike all of this with like by herself with a horse a camera and a journal and she wanted to photograph what was beyond because she had in the back of her mind the expansion of the sequoia national park and she wanted to help in whatever way she could because she could help um so she actually spent several summers doing this um she spent the the summers doing it because it was the best weather to do so so she hiked literally hundreds of miles photographing the terrain and the landscape it was really really tough but she knew that the land deserved to be preserved and i believe by the last summer she actually had a photographer join her so she wasn't alone but i just want to say i don't know how she didn't die like, no, think about it. it yeah, You're in the mountains. There's bears. There's 
um, snakes. There's, I don't know, there's a lot of things that could kill you. The terrain alone could kill you. That's just, like, sorry to go on about it, but that's literally just amazing. Like, I've only climbed, I think, two, three mountains in my life. And even that was kind of difficult as a person who was athletic. Like, that is a difficult thing to do. It's it's definitely, again, like well, I, what I said with Hoyt and, you know, it, it really was the the determination of specific yeah. individuals to go Women. above and beyond. Like, Sequoia was already a national park. Somebody had already been convinced to protect the land, but she, she felt knew. that more, in, in comparison to what Yosemite um, was protecting in terms of, of acres, Sequoia was a fraction of that. And there's a number of parks in California that are on top of each other, but they're all not, you know, you could just have all of them and call them all Yosemite, but they're broken up into smaller sections, all in the relative relative same area. But, you know, for her to, to go into areas, you know, she was quoted as having the photos of places few people had ever gone and documented. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously there's natives there before who would have been there, but she went in there with the camera and was documenting them and proposing it via visual images, which is an important milestone in 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 developing um, these kind of uh, visual protections for the parks and right. you know, proposals and stuff. And she actually, when she was done by the end of the last summer, she had created the largest and most complete photographic record of the region to date. Mm. And that's good. Like, not only... You know, she used that and sent it to President Roosevelt and was like, we need to protect this. Here's some beautiful images. And nothing easier than showing an image of, you know, El Capitan and saying, "This you protect this. Yeah, yeah we protect that. I mean, look at this. Mm-hmm. And so for Theo to go in there with the camera, you know, she would inspire Ansel Adams to go and do his. And Ansel Adams and his photographs are, you know, he's responsible, well, not totally responsible, but his photographs are a big reason why a lot of Colorado national parks, you know, South California, New Mexico, Utah, like a lot of those parks got protected because his photographs were so stunning and everyone was like, like, wow, you can see how beautiful they are. And it, it's kind of a weird argument that we still have to have because you, you can't, I can't imagine there's an individual who sees a picture of Yosemite National Park that's, you know, a pristine picture and it's like, oh, you know, that's disgusting. It's, well, we Let's just strip that. Like, you don't... It's, it's kind of weird how innately we are just drawn to its beauty. Like, its magnitude. You know, Ansel Adams, he had no editing. He had no real... No Photoshop. No, no real lens focal lengths. You know, he couldn't really, yeah. like, ex- dis- distort distance and scale. Well, neither scale. did she. Right. And she, and, like, he is said to have been inspired by her to do that. Mm-hmm. And he was already photographing things before, but, like... I don't know. It's just such a big accomplishment. Like, no offense, but to be like, a woman did this first. Like, mm. <laughs> like sorry, but it is. It's just, I mean, it's amazing. Like, she, when she submitted this, I, I mean, how were they not going to pass it? They had already had multiple bills to enlarge the park. Right. Since the, since the park had been founded in 1890, they were already like, oh, we got to make this bigger. We got to make this bigger. Mm-hmm. But she comes in, no experience, literally no experience, just a rich woman from Ohio. Yeah. 
with a huge camera. It's definitely not easy to transport, the, you know, these cameras that yeah. they're using. And she submits it, and then the bill passes, and the park is tripled in size. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, that's the power of being able to show, you know, via photograph. Like what I was saying, like they, you, you can't exaggerate it. Like today we have modern tools, you know, you can bump saturation, you can use dodge and burn and selectively darken and brighten parts of your image to make it look outstanding. But what these people did, you know, especially with you and nothing but natural light and the right angle, which means you exhaustively find every frame of trees, every frame of bushes, where the sun's hitting rocks in this landscape to get these effective images that were able to convince hundreds of people to go. And, you know, quickly they were put on flyers and, you know, quickly advertised this, go see the West. Um, and that was a big development of the parks as well. When the automobile came, people were like, well, what do I do with my car now? Like, where do I go? Go to the national parks. And so they geniusly, <laughs> they geniusly interwoven these new parks, quote unquote, as places to go for people. And, um, you know, quickly, like, when they saw Thew's photos and Ansel Adams' photos, they were like, we gotta go. Like, we gotta go and see this. Um, it's, it, yeah, so, you know, and not, not only is it good for, you know, actually convincing people to expand these parks and develop these parks, but for scientific purposes, you know, she documented how it looked then, we can see how it looks now, we can, you know, uh, a comprehensive guide as melina described earlier doesn't mean coverage of via photographs for map making person anything like that it also encompasses plants animals you know geographical features you know locations of where things are you know birds and photos like her her photo library was bigger than just you know economic tourism purposes but also scientific and research purposes it's amazing what women can do when they put their minds to it. Not wrong. Yeah. Not wrong. Um, she ended up passing in 1968, so she was 90 years old. So she really got to see um, the in park. In 1968? Yeah. And she did the thing with in the 40s? In four, what, what's the date? 40? In 1926. What's that date? In 1926, she submitted the Geographical Dictionary and the bill passed. And that's her photos thing? Yeah. So she lived, she lived to be... And you're saying she lived to be 90? She lived to be 90. She lived until, until 19... I'm just trying to think. Like, the math She was born up. in 1878, and she died in 1968. Yes, yeah, so she was... So she was 90. She, yeah, right, right. I'm not, I'm not debating that. I'm trying to do the math that... Because you were describing how hard this was for her to do. She was 40. Yeah, she was 40. 40, 40 years old. She trekking was 40 through years there, old. No experience. That, like, if... You had yeah, a father. Yeah, I guess I should have mentioned that. If you had she a father, you know, if you, you know, your dad, he's like, oh, you know what? You know, I'm going to go out and start hiking today. You'd be like, dad, don't. You're an idiot. Like, you're going to get hurt or die or something. That's a bad idea, dad. Don't go hiking when you're 40. <laughs> you know, you know, first time hiking as a 40-year-old is a bad idea. I'm just going to end with a quote. I know of no better place than the wild loneliness of some of the chosen spots in the high Sierra in which, when you have lost your physical self, you have found your mental and spiritual reawakening. So, when you think of national parks, what's one of the first things you think of? Park rangers. Yes. Park rangers. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so let's talk about two female park rangers. The first one we're going to talk about is Claire Marie Hodges. Okay, so Claire Marie Hodges was the first paid female ranger for the National Park Service. And she worked at Yosemite National mm. Park, which was one of the first national parks. Yeah. Yellowstone is the first. Yosemite's not far. It's second or third. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Top okay. five first parks, maybe. So she first visited Yosemite when she was 14 years old. And she fell in love with it. I mean, yeah, naturally, uh, yeah. it's beautiful. I would fall in love with it, too. And she actually started as a teacher in Yosemite Valley School. So during this time, she was born in 1890. So around this time when she was in her teens, World War One started to happen. Mm -hmm. So what happens when World War One happens? Okay, I'll tell you. Men go away to war. So, what happens when men go away to war? They gotta fill the jobs. Yeah, there's like jobs open, mm -hmm. I guess. Um, so, what was happening in the parks is um, they were having a shortage of male workers. And uh, just so you know, the National Park Service didn't really hire female workers. They would only hire... Um, women naturalists as full-time employees but um that barely happened to begin with so she really wanted to be a ranger she fell in love with yosemite she saw that they couldn't really hire any men because all of mm. the men were going away to war and you think about it back then it's not like you hop in a car to go across the park to deal with a problem or you hop in a right. car to go to the gate or something like that, you have to either trek on foot or trek on horseback. So if you're old and can't fight in the war, chances are you're old and you may not be able to be strong enough or physically fit enough mm -hmm. for this job. Yeah. So she actually wrote to the superintendent at Yosemite National Park. And here's what she said. She said, Probably you'll laugh at me, but I want to be a ranger. And I personally think that's really sad that she had to say that. Mm. Probably you'll laugh at me. Yeah, because they, you know, women felt like they had to preface anything they said by, you know, like, um, like humbling this this the scenario or whatever. You know, you're gonna laugh at me, but you know. Instead of, you know, a man would have just been like, I want to be a park ranger. And be like, well, all right, let's, oh, perfect. let's, let's start, get you started here. But, you know. All right, it's fine. You're hired. Oh, you're a woman and you're perfect for the job. Sorry, lass, but you're a lady. <laughs> um, I just, I just find that so sad that she had to say that. But yeah. the superintendent wrote back to her and he was like, I've actually been thinking about it and I would like to hire a woman. Um, so in 1918, she was hired in Yosemite and her job was she had to take the gate receipts from the meadow to the park headquarters. But let me just say something real quick. Okay. <clears throat> if you haven't been to a national park, the gate is usually far down a road before you even get to like a visitor center mm -hmm. or a headquarters or uh, anything and, like that. Yeah. Especially... During this time... There was no road, really, to uh, begin with. And like... I had briefly mentioned earlier, like, you know, 
the, the National Park Service at this time by 1918 has only been around. I'll have to get a date. I want to say it's it's not long. It, 10, 15 years maybe the National Park Service has been established. And they're still trying to get their footing doing anything. Paving roads, making trails, like at all. Well, not everyone has cars either. Right. It's and like... the. I mean, if you're poor, you probably don't have a car. I mean, maybe I'm being ignorant, but it's like early World War One, and we're about to hit the Depression soon after the war. So, like, I don't know. Yeah, and so, you know, back to the point of, you know, her moving these receipts, which seems like a, a menial task, is extremely difficult. Because it was really far yeah. in distance. Yeah, no roads, no, no real trails, no markers, you know, you know, rudimentary maps that, you know, probably don't take into account any type of topographical terrain, you know, hills and valleys and, um, you know, the distance probably isn't that great, but it's not easy. And being a ranger is a very, very, very difficult job that has always been underpaid and undervalued. Mm -hmm. Even recently, there's a, a wonderful book called Ranger Confidential written by a woman ranger who um, documents some of her experiences as a ranger and again people who are involved in the parks and their protection and their movement and and you know their their serene beauty they give everything Mm -hmm. like rangers their yearly salary is under fifty thousand dollars they can't live in private homes they live on the parks in shacks and they work 15 to 17 hour days right you know, and even today, you know, because of the park's protection, roads aren't prevalent. It's dirt paths at best, and you got an ATV, maybe as a ranger, or a horse. So even, you know, the, the a lot of the experiences this woman, and that I'm referencing, that she wrote these in the, you know, late 80s, 90s. So that's only, you know, 30 years ago. That the parks were still hard to traverse Mm -hmm. and not easy. So now if you take back to what Marie Hodges has to do in the 1918, it's not easy. No, The ranger job is extremely difficult and it's not for the faint of heart. So for Marie Hodges to get in early, you know, relatively speaking to the history of the parks, as the first woman sets good precedent to bring women on earlier than they normally be brought on to roles in, you know. We'll get to that, but anyways, I mean, it was a it was a tough ride. She it was an all night ride on horseback. Mm-hmm. She carried a gun, bears, um, bears, and it's just nature. I mean, nature. That no no at, lights. Well, yeah, nothing. no lights at night. Scary. I mean, a lot of people. A I'd lot be of, freaked out. I mean, I wouldn't carry a gun, but I'd be freaked out. Like a lot of people truly have never experienced darkness because oh, and they you would know, experience in true darkness. Yeah. Like the moon is your only friend, and the moon isn't even that bright. I will argue. Yeah, like eighty-five percent of Americans, you know, live in urban areas where even at night there's a street lamp. Or a streetlight everywhere, or you know the glow of a city or a town, you could see at night. Mm-hmm. But true darkness is extremely terrifying. So to r- ride a you know a horse at night in Yosemite, which is about as natural as it can be. Yeah. It's... Wolves. I just thought of another thing. Wolves. 
So her employment at Yosemite was very short-lived. Yeah, unfortunately. She was only hired from May 22nd to September 7th, 1918. I'm going to tell you why. Because women, if they were hired at all, were only hired for seasonal ranger duties or for temporary ranger Mm. duties. In this case, the war, or they probably found a man to replace her. Um... And again, the only full-time women hired war naturalists, but I seriously doubt that they were really seeking out women naturalists. Yeah, un- unlikely that they it's were pursuing. a very, I mean, look, as a person who loves the natural parks, uh, national parks, I hate to say it, but like, it's a very sexist system. Um, I believe the first, like, president or head of the whole national park system who was a woman wasn't even elected until the 2000s. So Isabel Bassett Wasson was the first female ranger at Yellowstone National Park, America's first national park, and she was actually the first interpretive ranger, male or female, hired by the National Park Service. Um, when she was hired to be a ranger, She said, you never heard of a woman ranger? Well, neither have I, which I feel like explains a lot about the national park system and hiring women. Um, She didn't really know about Claire Marie Hodges, probably because Claire Marie Hodges was only hired for a couple months, and she's probably only really known now because looking back, historians were like, wait a minute, she was the first ever female ranger. Mm -hmm. Um, she was also one of the first female petroleum geologists in America, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. A a pretty cool thing. Yeah, also, like, that's a, you know, that's a new profession, a new field. The automobiles taking off in the early 1900s, and, you know, by the time... You know, 1920 had rolled around. There were 14 million cars in circulation, which is kind of an insane number for the relative to the population and people who could afford them. And, you know, a lot of cars in circulation. So petroleum geologists is a new field. But kind of my point is that, you know, these women should have been involved in these fields earlier. Their contributions are there and they're valid and they're just as capable of men. But a lot of the problem becomes with just the way society had deemed the roles. And so for the role to be new and a woman to be involved in it that early, again, sets a good precedent. So as an interpretive ranger, what she did is is she trained guides and helped start a museum at the park. So in one summer, she was only hired for one summer, she gave over 200 public talks on the geology of the park. So, by doing this, she actually created the template for interpretive talks by National Park Service rangers, which is actually, like, a really big feat. Like, Mm. they saw what she was doing, and she did it so well that they were like, wait a minute, we should just do what she's doing. Yeah, because she kind of helps by what she was doing. You know, it it wasn't a ranger in the sense of, like, you know, protecting or or responding to calls or animals or something it, it was a ranger in a more educational sense that she was sharing her love of knowledge for you know whatever it was in yellowstone 
and just talking about it. And the park service is like, wait a second, she's setting a good example for how we should develop the parks and how they should be kind of done. So in a way, she kind of set the, 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 uh, the example for um, tours and guided tours and educational tours and providing you know, true, valuable knowledge. The park superintendent was trying to get bellboys, you know, hotel, you know, lobby guys or whatever you're going to call them to do these talks that she was doing. And she was like, but that's kind of dumb because I have to teach them to teach others. It's too slow. It doesn't, you know, why don't we just use college students who are studying the material and have them come do these talks? So she kind of also set up the partnership between universities and the park service for summer interns to, you know, spend their time at the parks talking about, um, you know, what they're studying, whether it's geology and rocks or, you know, botany and plants or, you know, biology and wildlife. It was actually a genius plan by her because, again, like how I mentioned earlier, like when some of these people they only speak money so this guy's like you know what like we why don't just give the bellboy another role and keep his salary the same instead of paying more of these things but she's like wait a second why don't we like blend the two together in a way because then the college students are actually getting something out right and it's not like even if they're not getting paid you know the, the classic intern trap even though interns should be getting paid especially in this day and age interns should absolutely be getting paid but um you know, then that was an absolutely genius way to promote uh, an expansion of university, uh, national park relations, and university um, just conduct. Like, you know, before this, maybe it was like, oh, you know, you just write a summer thesis, you know, some paper, some study. But now it's like, we got this new partnership with the Park Service where you can go and give tours. And we'll call it a internship. <laughs> Um, so that's a that's a really genius a really genius thing that Bassett. Uh, well, she in. was a genius woman. She, she was absolutely genius. She held degrees in history and I believe a master's degree in geology, and she was only hired by the National Park Service for one summer. They asked her to come back the next summer, and she said no because she was pregnant. And then she asked them if she could come back, and they said no. Yeah, they had the roles filled. Which kind of sucks because she basically created this whole thing. For yeah, them. she did. A, she did a good job contributing. I mean, so I don't really understand why they were like, no, but yeah, well. whatever. Um, but after this, she spent over fifty years as a science teacher in the public school system in Illinois. She also mentored young naturalists, and she was a lover of archaeology. She really loved Native American history and Native American archaeology. Um, and she was also really respectful to the environment. I think that's why she was really into the national parks and agreed to do this, because she actually helped start the environmental movement in the 20s and 30s. And I think that's really important, you know, especially about all of these women's women, but especially Isabel and um, Minerva and Susan, is they just had such a respect for the environment. And that's what really led them to, you know, live their life mm-hmm. the way that they did. Um, and, the, and that kind of respect for the environment sets a really good 
um, precedent for, you know, anybody who is following in their footsteps or to promote. They, they have a, a guideline for what is too far and what is too much. Um, and, you know, we mentioned earlier that Isabel worked as a petroleum geologist, which is a new field. Mm-hmm. And you know, a very profitable field that a lot of people were just going crazy. Like, There Will Be Blood, which is a Paul Thomas Anderson movie that about, uh, you know, uh, oil yeah. magnets who are just, they're going crazy. They're just buying, like, dudes' lands and just drilling into the earth. No no care for anything. But somebody like Isabel's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, she spent a, a, a good number of years traveling around South America and uh, the, the North American hemisphere guiding some of these oil companies on where they can drill how they should drill you know how to treat the petroleum and the environment and the way it interacts with it and really spending a good part of her life uh contributing a lot to national parks and petroleum geology as a whole i feel like it's important to talk about um kind of not necessarily the bad side of the national park service but you know there are some downsides to the national park service and i feel like if we ignore them we ignore the problem and that's just not how i want to live like i don't want to ignore the bad parts of history i think if they go ignored that's that's how history repeats itself and that's also not fair to the people who were hurt in the process Mm -hmm. for example the national park system it's patriarchal systems seem to be a little sexist and you know for a while didn't really hire women and that's why Isabel and Claire were only hired temporarily but also something about the national parks is um we have to think about the Native Americans who had actually lived on the land um of the national parks because it was their land first and it was always their land first before we even came here Um, And so when we talk about them, we talk about their women as well, because their women are just as important, Mm -hmm. you know, and there is much, you know, there is, they're just as important to the um, national park history as the rest of the history as well. So, you know, when Yellowstone was created, they actually, the government kicked um, the Shoshone, the Crow, Bannock, Blackfeet, and Nez Perce off the land. Land that there was that was already theirs. And, you know, that's that's horrible. They America gifted land <laughs> to to the rest of America that wasn't even theirs. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, a lot of the Native Americans had their access you know, forbidden for a while. And it's just not really fair. In Yosemite, after the Native Americans were driven away, some were allowed to return, but then they were forced to be a tourist attraction. Literally forced to live by a certain aesthetic that wasn't even their way of life to be a tourist attraction to bring in guests. <sighs> yeah, I mean, it's... And that's why it's important to talk about, because I feel like when you go to the national parks, does anyone talk about that? No, definitely probably no. buried or definitely Very deep. hidden. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's all about making America look good. And that's why they don't really like to talk about it. 
but it's not really fair to not talk about it. And so it's like we have these women who did these amazing things, but we also have like these bad things that happen to make these good things happen, and we can't ignore those bad things. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, they just did it all wrong. I mean, the, they really did. Like, you can't gift land that's not yeah, yours. Yeah, it's like like. What is wrong with you? It's, you know... You ruined the lives of other women who could have made history. Yeah, it's definitely... That's how I see it. It's definitely a a dark action and a dark time, you know, in the park service. You can't just ignore history to make yourself look better. Yeah, and you find that American That's all American history is. They say history is written by the winners, and I'm sorry, but... History is written by yeah, history. the straight white men who colonized um, countries. They say that the national parks were made basically because of the Native Americans. Like, they were inspired because of the Native Americans and how they looked at nature. But then, there you go, ironically... Yeah. Kicking uh, everyone off. And then you even had park rangers in Yellowstone saying that the natives never actually lived on that land. And if that isn't America for you, I don't know what is. That's it for this episode. Thank you to everyone for joining me. Uh, thank you to Maxwell for joining me. If you haven't already, you can check out her story talk on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. If you would like to donate to the Patreon, that would be amazing, but no pressure. And remember, it's not just history, it's hers too.